You are listening to the Catholic Thinkers Podcast, a free treasury of instruction in the Catholic intellectual tradition. If you enjoy this lecture, please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate. This course is from our International Catholic University Classics Collection, originally recorded between 1995 and 2005. So this chapter is on morality. Uh, I call it mathematical morality because we'll be asking the question, can you have a mathematical morality? The applied science then of ethics is basically answering the question, what should I do? Many will say there is no absolute answer. All things are relative. Indeed, no one should impose his morality on others. That's sort of the battle cry of the current state of moral thinking. Steven Weinberg said that ethics is unlike science in that there is no way to determine what is right. He said in an interview that I saw on TV that one just tries to find people that agree with him and there's no way to really talk to people about it. Now this is moral relativism and the doctrine of you can't tell me what to do because you have no right is the doctrine of moral relativism. But it's not always been so prevalent. Richard Feynman, the famous physicist that we talked about, responsible for the so-called Feynman diagrams in quantum electrodynamics that revolutionized quantum mechanics, says that all can agree on practical morality. And this is in the early 60s, saying that he wanted to parallel it to modern physics. Now, he did say that people can't always agree why that what they're doing is right, but they say that all can agree on a practical morality. And he wanted, in parallel to modern physics, to have a science of the externals of morality, not knowing why you're doing it, but just what you should do. He does not think views on the universe affect the way one thinks about morality. He says they're totally independent. Yet he is proposing an imperiological, a mathematical morality, if you will. He sees a future where we forget why we believe things as long as we believe in the same actions. Are morals relative in this way, or are they imperiologically accessible, the way Feynman says? These are kind of questions that are naturally brought up in our cultural milieu. To answer these things, like usual, we have to make some distinctions involving understanding the way the world is. But let's start with where people are now. Moral relativism and its key statement, no one should impose his morality on another. One should not impose one's morality on another. Another way of saying it is there is no reason that could give one the right to tell someone that I'm doing wrong. Current relativism's key statement, however, is self-contradictory. It says one should not say should not. That's nonsense. You should not say should not? Well, you told me I should not say it, and you're telling me I should not say it. It's circular nonsense. So there's really only two alternatives. Alternative number one, there is no way to tell others that they misbehave, including the admonition not to judge others, because that is also an admonition itself. One must allow those to do as they wish. In other words, you're reduced effectively to might makes right. The other option is to admit moral law of some type, norms for behavior that are to be followed by all. In either of these cases, one no longer has the option to say, you do not have the right to tell me what I should do. That's a nonsensical statement. Remember, like all material things, they have not 
the property of extension. You cannot chop an idea in half. You either have the idea or you don't. There is no such thing as half of a principle. So is morality purely relative? Well, we're going to get to the answer to that, but let's keep following a line here and think about, well, have you really met anybody who really believes this? Supposed moral relativists, if they were charged double in the grocery store and saw moral relativists coming, you say, you're moral relativist, you get charged double, would they sit still for that? No, most people wouldn't let it happen because they would say it's unfair. They recognize the non-relativity of morals. Can anyone imagine, as another example, an editor that says there is no ethical duty to reproduce what's given him the way it's given to him, so you could give him a story and he could make it into whenever he wants and put your name on it? What about if this same relativist child was kidnapped? Would he not be morally outraged? How could someone do such a thing? And more than that, most of these supposed relativists would feel some guilt if they saw one of these things happening and they had it within their power to do something about it and didn't. They would feel some guilt. And this all reveals the spontaneous infrascientific recognition of moral rights and duties. To continue this line about questioning ourselves about moral relativism, how would you organize society under these conditions of accepting that there is no moral law? If nothing binds one conscience, then the government must be in imposition by force. In the end, there's two alternatives and two only. Internal reason for doing something and an external reason. If you leave behind the internal, that there is a law binding you in conscience, then you're left with the external, which means might makes right. Spontaneity of the realization of moral duties and might makes right show in an incohate and a confused way how repugnant to reason the statement there is no moral law. So, there seems to be a moral law. We're going to come back to that and bring that point home. But for now, we have this other option that Feynman brought up to us, and that is the imperiological morality, the so-called mathematical morality. Let's go to Immanuel Kant, because he's the one that codified the system of imperiological thinking. Without knowing it, he, of course, thought he was talking about the whole world, but really, it was this world, this small subset of ideas in one's mind, and specifically clustered around the beings of reasons in one's mind. Kant says there is a moral law, but remember, in the pure sciences, he's abandoned any knowledge of things, so he's left basing his premises on beings of reason, not connected with the real world. And in the end, he's left with saying anything that's logically consistent. So this is basically a framework for moral relativism. So Feynman's approach then, the imperiological, the purely imperiological approach, is at bottom the same thing as moral relativism. In general, the imperiological, remember, is a tool of a larger science. In the case of the imperial metric, that is the study of the physical world as quantitative, that was a tool to understand what's going on in the real world. And in this case, this is going to be a tool of the larger science of ethics. It can only be a tool, but if you leave behind what you're doing with the tool and just keep the tool, if I have a hammer and I refuse to use it to build anything, then I kind of have an absurd situation. I do have an absurd situation. We left in Kant's situation of having no reality to ground, but only sorts of metaphors and models to work by. Mathematics, furthermore, works for physica because 
the first accident of this material being, and remember we're dealing with a type of material being that is a very low level of being, so it's very close to that first accident of quantity, so it works very well there. But in morality, we're dealing in an immaterial realm, this internal realm of conscience, which lacks extension. Remember, the property of a non-material thing is that it does not have extension. It does not have quantity. Hence, the mathematical mode of explaining there is not going to work very well. It's going to work very poorly because you're using something that doesn't directly relate to it to explain it. And to give an example of, and this is a common way of thinking of empirological, you will see this on TV where somebody wants to decide whether divorce is good or bad, and they will do a study. And this is basically looking at the world of morality in the lens of the mathematical after the model of physics. Again, it works for physics because physics is dealing with things that are close to the quantitative. Morality, on the other hand, we need to emphasize, has no aspects of that first accident quantity at its base. So it only applies to it sort of obscurely. But let's give an example of what would happen. Let's say you just want to do this imperiometrically. Try to model yourself after physics. And sort of by metaphor say, well, that physics is so successful, I'm going to do the same thing over here. So you do a study. You study the number of people that get murdered in a year in a given city. Then you study the number of people that lose their jobs, or say the number of jobs that are available. And let's say you find a very high correlation between the increase in murders and the drop in jobs available. Well, let's go through the problems. Well, the first is sort of a mathematical problem, and that is to know whether the correlation is real or accidental. And you can't really ever come to conclusiveness on that, but you can at least handle this one and kind of get it a little bit under control. But the problems get worse. Given the correlation is actually mathematically really there, it doesn't imply anything. It doesn't imply anything about what really is happening, because causes are going on in all different directions, and you have no idea what's causing what. If you study the elephant population in Africa, and it happens to correlate with the GM production in Detroit, you would kind of be a lunatic to think that there was a direct causal connection. But now it even gets worse. Assuming that you somehow convince yourself of a causal connection, it doesn't tell you what you should do. You have to have a standard of what's good to decide. For example, if you hate jobs, maybe you should go out and murder people. If that's really a causal connection, it doesn't contain any standard for judging. So you're just pushing the problem into a realm where it doesn't belong. Not that the imperiometric tool is totally useless, it's just that it's practically useless and it can only be an aid to the other approach we're seeing. It cannot be substitution in any way, even an approximate way, for what we're going to see is a true basis for morality. In the end, mathematical morality is then a pick-your-own field. If one uses the idea of efficiency, let's say to maximizing scientific benefit by scientific benefit, meaning that you get the most good physics, good chemistry, good biology, good psychology, so on, then you've already picked the standard of good. That's your standard. You've chosen that. It's arbitrary. I choose it. I like it. Why pick this one? because it's a pick-your-own. You're in the land of beings of reason where Godel's theorem applies, and you have this illusion of the mathematical not having final causality, which is what you need to talk about good. So is ethics a science, real science after all? Finally, the answer is yes. There are indeed moral absolute. 
They are founded on the real and can be studied and understood given real knowledge of how we should behave. Note that ethics, as I say, may make use of them, but it's further down the road. You cannot decide whether divorce is a good thing, for example, by a poll. You have to look at the natures involved and see if whether it's consonant with the natures involved. To find this science, we must move to put first things first. So we have to back up. Remember, our tendency in our modern culture is to jump way up here on the tree and then try to find our way back. And what happens is up here, we don't have all the principles we need, so we end up going over there somewhere. We need to start down here with things that we know and proceed outward. So what's the foundation? Well, we have to start with the transcendental called good. Good is in turn related to final causality, remember. Let's start with our perception of change in material things, which is evident to everyone. Change, again, is a reduction of potentiality to act. Potentiality, again, only means something with respect to what actually is. And remember this order, this ordination, that I like to use this example of if you have hydrogen gas and oxygen gas, and you put heat to it, poof, hydrogen, oxygen, gas turns to water every time. It's ordered to happen that way. In imperiometric terms, by explaining that the fields act in specific predetermined ways on a body such as electrons, you see the same thing. You have, again, Maxwell's equations that describe, if you have an electron, how that field will cause it to react, and it'll act in a preordained, foreordained way. Ordination implies foreordination. So, with the statement of the principle of finality, we can put down and we can start talking about morality. Every agent, insofar as an agent, acts toward an end. Every agent, insofar as it is an agent, acts towards an end. And if an agent were not to determine to some particular effect, it would not do one thing rather than another. Consequently, in order that it produce a determinate effect, it must be determined to a certain one of those possible effects. And that effect that it is oriented to has the nature of an end. And again, we're dealing with an analogous use of the word of being. Being is what we're talking about in all these things. Human nature is going to be the basis for everything we're talking about. Remember, man is a material being with the nutritive, sensorial, intellectual powers. And remember, with any kind of knowledge comes an appetitive power. The appetite power that is associated with the intellect is the will. And remember, when we judge something to be good, we're attracted towards it. Now, all things are good insofar as they are. Evil, remember, is a privation of the good, something a thing should have but doesn't. We can say ontologically all things have a natural appetite for their completion. So this is, again, an analogy. And we can say in an analogous sense that they love what they're going for. They're attracted to what they're going to do. Remember, we talked about the hydrogen and oxygen forming under heat water. So there's a love in this extended sense of this end of creating water. At the inanimate level, an agent is oriented towards the completion of the potentiality in another. Appetite and love are used analogically here, for they don't imply a volition. They do not imply that the thing really loves. It just has this similar being-oriented behavior. This being has an end. All created being has ends outside of itself that's the source of its action. This is not merely metaphorical. It is ontological ordination that we're talking about real ordination. So remember, good is a primary thing. It's one of the interchangeable aspects of being. So it cannot be defined, but it can be pointed at. So good in the broad analogical sense is the desirability of a thing. 
in this extended sense of desirability. It increases in amplitude and meaning as we ascend the scale of being, for good is being under the aspect of desirability, as essence was being under the aspect of intelligibility. Truth was being under the aspect of intelligibility. At a low level of being, like hydrogen gas and oxygen gas, they're attracted towards the good, which is water. The good of plants is to assimilate chemicals into their leaves and stems, thereby completing the potentiality in those chemicals, pulling those chemicals up by making them part of themselves, raising them up. Every created thing then acts to perfect itself and to perfect another. Of course, this applies only to real being, not beings of reason, like evil. Evil is a privation of being. It's a lack of being, of being that something should have, but nonetheless a lack of being. So this principle, like all principles of being, don't apply to things that can't exist outside the mind. Only to what is good, then. All things exist for themselves in operation, to overflow themselves by action, then. As Maritain says, every being is love of a good, and this is the ground of its action. So we've further seen what this transcendental good is, revealing it's multi-layered, like all the other transcendentals, polyvalent and analogical character existing on proportionally different levels. So what's the first principle of morality? We're ready to lay it down. Do good, avoid evil. Once we know what good is, this principle is self-evident. Once we know the terms of this, as we've just went through, the principle is self-evident. An agent cannot act with evil as its end, because evil is a lack. It cannot act towards nothing. Let's suppose an agent did that. Then if it acted with evil as its end, it would act toward no end at all. What acts towards no end at all does not act. That is, there is no to do for the thing to do. The absurd conclusion results from trying to deny the first principle of morality. Do good, avoid evil. But men do evil. Am I saying evil is impossible to do? No, of course not. Evil is not impossible to do. It's just that what we choose to do must at least have the appearance of good to us. It must attract us. And only real being is attractive, is desirable. If we've chosen a real good, then it will increase our being, while if not, it will contract our being. It will introduce a disorder. Remember, unity is one of the transcendentals. The more integrated I am, the more whole I am, the more I am. The less integrated, the less ordered I am, the less I am. So we need some more distinctions to continue. Moral action takes place in two realms, as we hinted at. Its primary sphere, the formal sphere, is the internal the intellect together with the will, in acting in our substantial form. The second sphere is the material sphere. It's the external world. Man then acts, decides, and he acts in the world. When I consider something is good for me, I'm attracted to it. It is a predicate waiting for a subject. So it's this dangling predicate that's going to call for a subject. The morally good, what you should do, is what is really good for you. So this is self-evident because what is Good for me implicitly contains the I should do it. We cannot deny. This is what St. Thomas calls the second mode of perseity. Second mode is self-evidence because it's the predicate that calls for the subject as opposed to the subject calling for the predicate. So what about unintentional evil? Remember when we use the intellect, we reason and we can make mistakes. We can choose things that only appear good for us but actually are not. Now, to the degree that the error is not really our own, then it's not moral evil. We have not internally damaged ourselves, but it's still externally evil. If it's evil, it's evil. 
and that still causes damage. And I give an example. Let's say that you regularly buy stamps from a stamp machine at your local post office. And you've come to realize that when you press the stamp button, put your money in, you get a stamp. But you don't realize that what's happening in the back of the machine, inside the machine, is that there's a problem and there are toxins being released every time you press this button. And in the end, it ends up causing cancer to the repairman who has to work on that machine. Now, your limited knowledge, you didn't know that this was happening, so you're not morally responsible, and it doesn't damage you internally, but the external evil still results. So deliberate evil, then, what do we mean by that? What we mean is that we can choose a good despite the evil that it will require, or the evil that brings with it. For example, we may know that stealing something from a store is wrong, and we'll talk about this more, but we may still want it, the benefit of the thing is going to give us. So it's the thing that we're going to get that attracts us, and we do the evil in spite of the fact that it's evil to get the good that we want. Every choice for evil, we deaden our reason so that we may do what we please, and this introduces a deliberate element of irrationalism in our thinking that then becomes habitual, or can become habitual as we continue to do it. We always do evil, again, under the auspices of an attracting good, of a real good. Even suicide, when someone does suicide, he's thinking that it's good for him to be released from life. So this first principle, do good, avoid evil, cannot be denied. It's a self-evident principle once you understand the terms. We decide what is good for us by reasoning. Moral thought, then, is based on conscience. Conscience comes from the Latin word with science, with knowledge, conscientia. So conscience is nothing else but the mind of man passing moral judgments, the mind of man trying to figure out what he should do and what he shouldn't do. And like all things to do with man, there's a subconscious element, there's this infrascientific element where we figure a lot of things out kind of in the background. So what is good for us? Every act involves ontological good, because everything that is, is good to the degree that it is. But what specifies what's good for us? Well, reality does. Our nature and its proper place in the universe specifies what is good for us. We must conform ourselves to reality. Remember the top-level science of truth is conformity of mind to reality. In the medium sciences, the applied sciences, we're conforming ourselves to reality. In the process, we find ourselves, not lose ourselves. And some images, again, we're creatures that use images, so we, it's helpful to have these things floating around. The world is like a tuning fork. If we sing the right notes, it sings with us. If we don't, then they don't. And given a musical score with words and a chorus, one can sing according to the words and chorus and increase the harmony, or one can go opposed to it and decrease the harmony. Now, this metaphor limps severely because it implies that you can just go somewhere else and do something else. We're in our actual state, moral life. We have no such option. We're here. Everything we do is either for good or evil. Our moral life involves not some part of ourselves, but all of ourselves and the whole of reality open to us. We choose to use our reason to act in accord with reality or against reality. Moral evil is in, then, in the end, inscrutable, because in the end, it's irrationality. Recall physical evil like that found in the animal kingdom can be shown to be good to relative to a higher plane. Moral evil is not a disorder that can be shown good to relative to a higher plane within the created order. 
it is an absolute good within the creative order. There's no relative good within the creative order that can be referenced to. So what is good for us in, in the sort of big picture way? Well, we saw that in being in the physical world that there were accidents that inhere in substance, that things like red or hardness that must exist in another thing. And those were accidental beings. And we also saw there were some things, there had to be things that exist of themselves. And so an analogy to this, we can talk about accidental goods and substantial goods. They can also call them useful goods. The, I mean, the accidental we can call useful goods, and the end goal is kind of our substantial good. So for example, if I wanted to take a trip to Yellowstone, my substantial good would be to get to Yellowstone. My accidental good would be the things I'd have to do along the way to get there, stay at a hotel a couple nights or whatever it is. Intermediate goals, if you want to call it that. As we saw, though, in the last chapter on God, there must be a final ultimate goal of the substantial goal. Otherwise, as we saw before, even an infinite number of things doesn't explain the thing if there's not a final one that contains the explanation and doesn't refer outside itself. That is goodness itself. We saw that in the last chapter. I won't repeat all the arguments. We know by the same chapter that all these goods must be ordered to goodness itself. In short, we, like all things, are ordered to God. He is our ultimate end. So is God seeking our attention? Is that why he created us? Of course not. God has no lack. He is perfect being, pure act. He has no needs. He acts only as pure goodness. And remember, pure goodness is diffusive of itself. It naturally gives. St. Thomas says, God seeks his glory not for his own sake, but for ours. What is specifically good for me then? By now it should be clear that while everything is good, everything that is, insofar as it is, is good, not everything is good for me. Cyanide is ontologically good. For example, it's used in case-hardening steel. But it's not good for me to eat. It kills you if you eat it. The order of moral good then is a subset, a smaller part of the whole ontological good. To identify the specific goods, we must identify our needs as opposed to our wants. There's two categories of such needs. Needs of the body, needs of the immaterial substantial form or soul. The body has the nutritive powers, the sensorial powers, which the nutritive powers need the food, air, right temperature. Our sensorial powers need different things to be exposed to, to learn, to have new phantasms and new things to abstract. All these things must work together for them to be a unity, a being. Remember the interchangeability of being and unity. There must be an order among them, and we know that the order is the intellect is the highest power. It contains, as the triangle contains the square, the sensorial and the nutritive, and the material. This is the order we must keep them in if we are to be good to ourselves. We act like animals when we ignore the needs of the intellect and diminish ourselves. If we put the nutritive above the intellectual, then we putting ourselves in disorder. We're decreasing our being. We should indeed enjoy the sensorial pressures of eating and so on, but they should be directed by right reason in the correct order, done in their proper place and time. Well, let's make use of a cultural reference point here to get further into the specifics, and that is the Ten Commandments. And this is not really a religious reference, it's a generic way of attacking these general principles of reason and they're available to us culturally because the Ten Commandments, all of them are incorporated to one degree or another in American civil law and practice. 
Moral principles have a character of a command because once they are understood, they come implicitly with, and I ought to do this. I should do this. So they're also called duties. Now the Ten Commandments, the first three reference God, and the last seven reference duty to man. There's different countings of the commandments, but you'll realize that that's not an important point. I'm just going to use this counting. Take the latter first, which is the duty to fellow man. Where does this duty come from? What does the word fellow man mean? It's suggesting that we have a common nature, which we do. We have a common nature, which is to have an immaterial substantial form whose chief power is the intellect. And this, because it's immaterial, it's infinitely above in the sense that even an infinite number of material things could not compare into it in value. And it's the image of God because we have an intellectual nature. And this is the golden rule, do unto others as you would have them do unto you, is again an expression of our common nature. We should do to ourselves and others the same because we both have the same nature. What does it entail? Well, it obviously entails a duty towards self. If you don't have a duty towards self, then the duty towards others doesn't exist either because they're equal. So let's take one of the, these commandments about your fellow man. You should not steal. Our dignity requires this because there's a need that's attached to it, and that is to have some control over some part of the world. We have a free will, and to exercise that free will, we must have control over some part of the world. If things could be arbitrarily taken from us, we would not be able to exercise that gift of acting for the good. Without some number of things as one's own, freedom would be a practical non-reality. If I don't respect this, I'm trying to take a place in the world that is not my own. If I try to take things that are not my own, I'm trying to equivalent to put a square peg in a round hole. It's only going to cause problems. The civilized society will have laws against stealing, the force of which will not come from fear of punishment for most people, but from the internal force of seeing that it is right. Even more forcefully, we see the, and feel the truth of the duty not to kill an innocent person. An individual person, as we've seen, is created directly by God because he has an immaterial substantial form. And only God, therefore, has sovereignty over that created life. One can understand that a man might forfeit this right to bodily life by brutally killing and torturing innocent people, for example, with no willingness to stop. But killing a man that has committed no such offense is equivalent to trying to usurp God's sovereignty. Because such a man that you're trying to kill who's innocent of such crimes has the same status with respect to the moral realm as when he was initially created by God. So it's as if at the moment that God is creating him, you're trying to stop him. So thus one is putting oneself right straight up against one's ultimate good. Not a smart thing to do. The last example is the Ten Commandments having to do with thou shalt not bear false witness. And this is couched in a manner whereby we can see clearly the reason for it, because in this case, it's talking about if you testify, for example, against someone and tell a lie, you can damage that person's reputation. And that damages his whole ability to act. And worse things cannot really happen to a man than lose his ability to act in the culture. In the material sense, worse things can happen. But we see that this is a way of stating that we need truth from each other. And we just see this is a particular catastrophic case of when you don't give truth to each other. In general, we need truth in order to act and not make missteps. If someone tells us a lie, then we make missteps based on that. And this particular case of bearing false witness shows 
how it can damage the individual that has been lied about or the things that have been said that aren't true can damage the integrity of that person's participation in the whole community. We are made for truth. While bodily integrity and the like are necessary for that truth, they are only exist for truth. Indeed, bodily integrity without any intellectual integrity makes us lower than the animals because we have a nature that's an intellectual nature and we're forcing that nature to be like an animal. So an animal has his nature and we're trying to be that nature lower than that nature and we aren't. So that's an evil that puts us lower than the animals, perverting the higher nature. And uh, I should mention that, as we know, evil is the privation of a good and a disorder in a good. So the higher a good is, the more evil it can become. A man can become very evil. You can think of Jack the Ripper as being much more evil than you can ever think of a slug becoming evil because to be evil you have to first have some good to pervert. So living truth in action again is what morality is about and this leads us back to our duty to God who is truth himself. And we'll return to this in a moment. But for now we have to note that everything that we do is either good or evil. Though many things in the world are neutral in themselves, each of our free acts in so far as they are such are either moral or they are not. They're either consistent with the nature and our place in it, or they are not. Most of these daily choices are minor, but these are the stuff out of which the larger choices are then made. How can we at each moment be thinking about all these things, then you might say? How can I possibly be figuring out all these things right? And this, you might add, is compounded by another disorder that I notice that happens from birth. If you've had children, you probably noticed this, that a child will choose harm rather than listen to his mother who's been right many times before. He wants to climb up on that chair and he's seen that he falls down and he hurts himself and his mother is telling him he's going to, but he does it anyway. We have a sort of inclination that we're into disorder that we're born with. So we have that on top of having to figure all this stuff out, how can we ever do it? Well, the answer is we develop habits, second natures. Now, there are two types of habits, the voluntary and involuntary. Involuntary are part of our sensorial and nutritive natures, breathing, the pumping of the blood, and the natural activity of the brain. When in their proper order, when they're working right, they're all at the service of the voluntary actions. But more importantly, we have a subconscious that's partially controllable by us and by our voluntary actions. And we can form that subconscious or deform it by our habitual actions. Scientists, for example, become accustomed to how to solve a problem in an experiment because they do it over and over again. And if they do it right and they get good at it, they can do it without having to think about each little step. Similarly, liars become good at lying. It takes them no effort to be convincing while they're lying. Those who tell the truth have a hard time if they decide to tell a lie. And similarly, if these liars decided to tell the truth, they'd have to resist that inclination when they come to the point of wanting to say something that's true that is against what they want people to think. So, habits of doing goodwill will help rule our disordered nature. But it's the coaches saying, no pain, no gain. You get out there on the field and you do what you have to do over and over again until that blocking becomes second nature, until that tackling ability becomes second nature. But it takes time, takes effort. And we have to go against the grain, if you will. By habitually forming our little decisions by discipline, we build character, the order in our nature to make decisions that will make us happy. Habits 
that help one live a good life, habits of doing good are called virtue. And there are four cardinal virtues, prudence, justice, fortitude, and temperance. One of these is for each power of the soul. Prudence is the virtue that regulates our actions in our mind when we try to figure out what we should do. And justice is for the will. Fortitude, also called courage, is to keep in order this tendency, like the tendency of anger when something evil happens that you want to respond to, even though the evil is there in the example of the fireman saving the woman. The evil of the fire is there and his tendency is to flee from it, but courage goes against that tendency and fights against the fear and acts. Temperance regulates our simple emotions, the attractive sort of emotions like when it's Thanksgiving morning and you haven't eaten your turkey yet and it smells so good and you have to wait till it's ready. And then when you eat it, you have to not eat it so much you don't get a stomach ache. So temperance regulates that. The degree to which my involuntary actions are in the right order under the voluntary ones together with the degree of my voluntary actions follow right reason, follow the order that I'm meant to have in the order of creation. That is the measure of my integrity, the degree that I am one thing. Remember, unity and being are interchangeable. The degree that I am one, and hence the degree that I am. In chapter 5, we noted that man's chief power and his lesser powers. But we saw how they were ordered, and we can look here, and we see that the virtues establish a sort of second nature in greasing the skids. But we need something else, and that is this right ordering of our passions. This does not mean suppressing our passions, nor does it mean using them sparingly or at low intensity. It means not using them inordinately, not using them out of order. Desire is the fuel engine of our actions. The more our desire is what it should be, when it should be, the less work we have to do to respond to daily events. So we got to keep everything in right order, and this brings us back to this little picture of the senses, collecting the information, the reason, making the decisions and the emotions fueling the attraction towards the good. So living a good life leads to right desire, desire that is in tune with our best interests. You might not have never heard right desire discussed before. Why isn't it discussed? Well, there's two reasons that it's not discussed. And that is, the first one is the abandonment of reason, and hence the whole concept of order and morality. Again, what happens is the imperial logical takes over, and people have the illusion that they can decide things by as I call it, mathematical morality, math studies, polls, so on. And then secondly, there is the implicit belief, funnily enough, in our culture that passions are bad when they are connected with intellectual work. This feeds back on the first. Emotions have their proper place. Prevent thinking leaves emotion out completely. Matter of fact, there's a tendency to assign those most devoid of emotion as those that are the most intelligent and wise. In actual fact, this is completely wrong. One who is not integrating his emotions correctly in the portion of his life will develop habits in other areas of his life that are inordinate use of those emotions. Aristotle points always to balance in these things. What happens when you leave out emotions where they should be, which is everywhere, is that one extreme breeds the other. And this example, this anecdote from Bill Moyers' show where he was talking to um, a literary guy named Herman Golub. And Herman Golub was pointing to the dichotomy between reason and the heart. And he says, one should go with the heart always because thinking always ends in egotism. And this is a result of men using their minds in an imbalanced way. 
and it ends up being a character of the mind. We do not want men whose hearts are divorced from their heads or vice versa. Remember, we have to have this right desire. The desire is what attracts us to the good and makes us go towards the good. C.S. Lewis called men such as Moyers had discussed in this thing, men without chest. Men without that intermediate connection that allows the reason to act rightly in the world. Living the virtues establishes this right balance, this right desire. And it keeps this sort of thing from happening where you have people saying, okay, well, look at those guys with the intelligence. They just are locked in their heads. It doesn't ever connect to anything that matters. And therefore, that's egoism, so I won't think. I'll just feel, which is what the heart becomes reduced to. So you get the one extreme breeds the other. The more right our desire, the greater our desire for truth. Not just any truth, but for truth himself. The profound medievalist C.S. Lewis says in another place, most people, if they've really learned to look into their own hearts, would know that they want, and want acutely, something that cannot be had in this world. There are all sorts of things in this world that offer to give it to you, but they never quite keep their promise. Now, creatures are not born with desires unless satisfaction for those desires exists. A baby feels hunger, well, there is such a thing as food. A duckling wants to swim, well, there is such a thing as water. Men feel sexual desire, well, there is such a thing as sex. If I find in myself a desire which no experience in this world can satisfy, the most probable explanation is that I was made for another world. If none of my earthly pleasures satisfy it, that does not prove the universe is a fraud. Probably earthly pleasures were never meant to satisfy it, but only to arouse it, to suggest the real thing. St. Augustine summarizes this all very briefly. For thou hast made us for thyself, and our hearts are restless until they rest in thee. So this all leads us back to our ultimate good. Now, it's important to remember that we must seek truth for its own sake, not for the appearance of truth. The sophists sought the seeking, the appearance of seeking, as their good. This is why they poisoned Socrates, the teacher of Plato. Because he was unmasking, he was destroying their one good, which was the appearance of seeking truth, and the appearance of having truth. This appears in the movie Man for All Seasons in a very clear way. And I hope to create this kind of as a reference image, because these images are important. This is the way our nature is put together. And what happens is he's asked to deny the supremacy of the papacy in the church, and he believes the papacy is supreme, but he's asked to deny it by Henry VIII, because Henry VIII wants to divorce his wife. And he refuses to do it, but his daughter in the movie tries to convince him to do it. She says, after all, just say it and don't really mean it. And he explains that he's holding his very self in his cupped hands when he has to make this decision. If he lies, he lets his very self out because it has to do with our own being, the highest part of our nature, which is our intellectual nature. Now, uncaring about truth is not for days past, just in St. Thomas More's time. I know renowned scientists who have told me to their face that it doesn't matter what's true. So we have this problem, and it comes from lack of philosophical and moral attention. And part of the confusion comes from this refusal to make the distinction between the empirological and the ontological, or the inability, I should say, to make the distinction. 
always said can be summarized by saying we seek to be happy. No one can deny this. Everyone will say he wants to be happy. The content is what is needed, and our analysis has provided that content, how we become happy, what makes us happy. Happiness consists in seeking and finding truth himself. We do this in our daily actions in a thousand little and a few big ways. Aligning oneself with what is really good can only increase one's degree of perfection, one's being. It doesn't mean that one will feel happy all the time, but one will be doing what's necessary to bring himself to his ultimate end, to his ultimate need, which will fulfill him. How does intention affect happiness? Well, we've seen mistake in, in reasoning, doing something evil unintentionally is not a distortion in the moral realm. Yet the ontological realm still suffers. Recall the stamp machine and how the, the repairman still got cancer. Note, however, an important part here is that you can dull your habits so that you see something coming in the end, and you dull your habits so you don't have to see it. And that makes you more responsible, not less when you come to it and you don't actually see it because you've dulled your intellect so you don't see it when the time comes. Such habits that dull your ability are called vice. Any habit that is a evil done over and over again that puts you in the groove of doing evil makes for a habit of vice. The ends and means. One may do evil because it is a part or on the way to good. Remember, we never are attracted by the evil itself. The evil is a lack of being. We're attracted by the good. And the evil that comes along with it, or that is a part of it, we accept as something you have to do to get that good we want. For example, there's a Princeton University philosopher now who is maintaining that you can kill a child up till he's one years old, if whatever reason is, if you don't want him. And the good he's seeking here is the quiet, the freedom for himself and others to live their vocation or whatever. But it's at the expense of an innocent person. Similarly, a politician might say, well, this bill is really important. We've got to get this bill passed because it's so necessary. And in the process, he'll say, well, I have to cheat a few people to get there, of course, because that's the way we have to do it. Of course, this person is trying to play a role that he's not been given. He's trying to play what I call the role of the cosmic fixer. He's trying to redo creation in a different way than it's been done. He puts himself in the place of God, implicitly saying, I know better than the first cause. Acts as if he can create that new, better order. He will be less happy, of course, less himself, for having gone against his ultimate end. And this will end up coming back sooner or later on himself. Confucians call this the Tao, or the way. The common man says what goes around comes around. The end result of it is the end never justifies the meaning distinction to Machiavellians. So, are we saying atheists are not moral and will not be happy? Well, it depends on what you mean. If they truly reject God, including any explicit acceptance of him by the acceptance of the order he established, the answer is absolutely yes. However, the reality is not so simple. Many are not denying God. They're denying something that goes by that name, but they actually hold him a high place in their heart. But there are also many, we don't know numbers here, but there are also some who refuse to allow themselves to know God, and then, of course, that responsibility to the degree that it's deliberate is there. And that determines the degree of responsibility and the degree that they are not moral and not happy. In the end, those who really love God but don't recognize the name will acknowledge him at least implicitly. 
As Nietzsche says, the will to truth, the example and the witness, for example, of the scientist searching for the hidden realities of truth are witness to the God of truth in some small way or in some big ways, depending on the particular case. Scientists and morality. So modern scientists have at least an implicit respect for truth because they seek at least to understand the quantitative interrelations among things. Yet as we've seen, there's an affection of moral relativism and even the relativism of truth that results from putting the imperiological first. But what made Feynman think in 1963 that external morality would be unaffected by changes in science and religion? It's an interesting question. And he's not alone. Other people have said such things. Well, part of it comes from his ignorance of sound philosophy. Partly it comes from an interest in imperial thematic, and mostly imperial metric, actually, science that blinds him to other things. Remember, the mathematical has a very limited part of the world left in it, and it has left out the final causes, left out motion, and so on. But also partly comes from his experience. He was seeing students that would come in and would start along one path and then return to the path of traditional morality. Well, how did this happen? Because we have to explain this. He saw this. Did they figure it out on their own? Did they just come out and figure out, after all, morality is based on reason. You can figure it out. Well, don't forget, you have this disordered nature, and it's not easy to figure out. You have to put a lot of intellectual effort into it. So it would be extremely difficult, not impossible. But the thing that makes it hard to believe, almost impossible to believe, is that you're in an academic milieu. For example, his academic milieu was the California Institute of Technology. And in that academic milieu, you're being told that you can't figure it out. I mean, Feynman, after all, is telling us that there's no way to figure it out. It's sort of practical. You don't think about it. And so they're telling him you can't figure it out. For example, it would be equivalent if you were going to study general relativity, Einstein's theory. But everyone around you was telling you you'll never figure it out. You would never do it. It would be impossible to learn it. We come back to our cultural milieu where we talked about that we need this improper knowledge that we get from the larger authorities around us. And the point is, is that what was happening in the early 60s is there was a larger cultural Christian milieu that was impinging on the university. And that's where these students got their information. They got this improper knowledge from the culture, and it was impinging on the university, making people behave in the ways according to its norms. So the old doctrine was still in the air despite the new doctrine being taught. It keeps you from taking it completely seriously at first. You have these old ingrained habits that die slowly. So you have this inertia basically inherited from your ancestors. The Christian worldview, the Catholic worldview was still strongly in the air. So this is why it's so important to bring moral philosophy to the fore. Because if we don't, sooner or later, this new doctrine will replace the old doctrine completely. Of course, it can never really in the mind of a thinking man, because it makes no sense, but it can in the habits and the actions of the culture, and that will make it harder for these reason to come to the surface. It's like the proverbial frog. You may have heard the story that if you take a frog and you stick him in boiling water, he'll jump out almost immediately. But if you take him and you stick him in lukewarm water, and then you slowly turn up the heat, then by the time he realizes what's happened to him, he can't get out. Are we squandering this inheritance then that we've gotten? 
the cultural inertia that Feynman saw that was making his students behave in a certain way, despite their thinking, has changed a lot even since the time that he wrote this opinion that morality was independent of what you thought about science and religion. Consider how the average man in 1963 would view our beginning 21st century culture. We've went from a low tolerance for divorce and a minuscule divorce rate to a high tolerance for divorce, where divorce is commonplace. From a universal rejection of abortion at all stages of the pregnancy to universal acceptance during all stages up to and including birth. From a world where the child's biggest problem was tardiness, whether he was going to be tardy or not, to where it's not uncommon for children to worry about whether someone will have weapons and kill them. Morals, contrary to what Feynman thought, are affected by science, by our general understanding of the world. We can lose it all if we don't recognize that our cultural inheritance can be used up. So this brings us to current issues, moral issues. I'll just pose them as questions. Should we clone human beings? Should we use embryos for research? Should we genetically engineer new animals and plants? What limits should be put on technology? Generally, should our curiosity be the only limit? We can answer some of these questions relatively quickly with the solid base that we've already put down. Case in point, we know the answer to the hotly debated question on embryo research, the so-called embryo stem cell research, and also the so-called therapeutic cloning, where you take an embryo and then you do experiments on it and then kill it. We know killing an innocent human person is wrong. We've seen that in our moral understandings earlier in this lecture. We also know from an earlier chapter that human life begins at conception. So we know that deliberately killing embryos for any reason, research or whatever, is wrong. We could go through some of the other ones, but we've established the base and the method for approaching all such problems. Moral philosophy requires hard work in applying these principles, contemplating them. More than that, it requires one to live the truth. For in living the truth, you become connatural with the good and you become more able to see what's good and what's not spontaneously, as we said before. We build that right desire. We integrate ourselves so that these decisions become second nature. So our thought must change how we act. Can't just make it a theoretical thing. We must be willing to conform to reality. Remember, the highest science is conformity of the mind to reality. This science is about conformity of self to reality, conformity of our actions to reality. So we've set the groundwork for solving moral problems. Our key one in this book is how then should we do science? And that is the title of our next chapter. We hope you enjoyed listening to Catholic Thinkers. Please visit us at catholicthinkers.org forward slash donate to help us keep this content free.